I would invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Jonah one last time, to the fourth chapter. Well, hopefully not the last time you turn to the book of Jonah, but for this, this series, that is. Uh, Jonah chapter 4, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 4 as we take one last look together at this incredible book of God's faithfulness and mercy and grace. With the Word of God open before us, let's turn to Him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would open our eyes, that we would behold Your character in Your Word, Your nature, Your goodness and grace and compassion, that we would see ourselves turn from our sin unto You. Soften hard hearts, Lord, and break stiff necks that we might not be found as those who hear the word, nod vigorously in agreement, and then walk away from the mirror forgetting what we look like. But rather, Lord, make us doers of your word for the glory of your son's name in this place and to the ends of the earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This, of course, referring to chapter 3, verse 10, that God did not destroy Nineveh. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting. From disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now, I have approached this text over the past week with a bit of heaviness, and I have felt this way even leading up to this morning. There's a heaviness around a text like this for a number of reasons. All joking aside, I know that many people 
have not gotten past the part where they simply want to know what kind of fish could have swallowed a man alive. And that will be the limit to which you're willing to engage with a sermon series like this or a book of the Bible like Jonah insofar as you're able to gather some trivia from the Old Testament. Perhaps today you're interested in what sort of a plant can grow up in just a day and provide such good shade. I'm sure that there are gardeners amongst us who would love to know what sort of plant grew up around Jonah. All of this indicates, of course, that the point of the book has been missed. Jonah is not a historical trivia book. Rather, it is a drama unfolding the grace and mercy and compassion and love and covenant faithfulness of God toward wicked, undeserving sinners. Second, I know that many of us will leave unsatisfied with a resolution or lack thereof in the book of Jonah. Did you notice how it ends? Perhaps the single greatest anticlimactic closing verse in all of Scripture, and also much cattle, question mark. Not exactly the conclusion to such a dramatic story that we would expect. Of course, we would not be satisfied with a movie that ended like this unless we were guaranteed a part two of which we find none in Scripture. Again, however, I want to point out that the question of what happens to Jonah in the mythical chapter 5 misses the point. For Jonah is not the focus of this book. This book is not about Jonah. It is about God. It's about his covenant faithfulness, his mercy and grace and compassion and love towards people who don't deserve it. Jonah is a foil. Jonah is here to highlight our silliness, our stubborn rebellion, our bitterness, our pride, and to serve as a contrast, ironically, to the wicked pagans, even the pagan mariners and the Ninevites themselves and most explicitly as a contrast to God. Jonah's heart contrasts God's. Although having said all that, I do read the book of Jonah with great hope for Jonah. Uh, Jonah finds himself once again in the presence of a covenantally faithful God who works grace and mercy in even the hardest of hearts. The Ninevites, to a man, woman, child, and animal, repented in chapter 3. I don't have trouble believing that Jonah repents in chapter 5. God gets the last word in this book. I know that many people have come to me in all sincerity and said, I wish that there was more after this. I wish that it had ended in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is brilliantly conclusive. Uh, The people repent. God relents. Everyone is now faithful to the Lord. Jonah had just repented in chapter 2. It seems like things are on the up. And then we have this chapter 4 about his misery. I wish it would have just ended in chapter 3. But rather, do you realize that what we have here is exactly what we need? Jonah ends with God speaking, not man. Jonah ends with a word about God's disposition towards sinful humanity, not another example of Jonah trying real hard or messing it up or getting it right. I don't, we don't need another scene about Jonah either being faithful or unfaithful. You and I need reminders of God's faithfulness. And that's how the book ends. We need the word of God's compassion far more than another word about Jonah's attitude. But most of all, having said that, 
the heaviness that weighs on my heart is there because I know that this book, specifically this chapter, addresses an issue that I fear is rooted deep within the hearts of many professing Christians. And I approach a text like this like a doctor holding a lab report in my hand, coming into a room with a couple and sharing a diagnosis that nobody wants to hear. Jonah chapter 4, as I'm sure you're aware from the sermon title, is about bitterness. And it is a disease which is pervasive in the Christian church and among professing believers. Bitterness of heart. And it is a deep well from which bitterness is drawn. Now, like that doctor who comes into that receiving room ready to give the diagnosis, there is still hope, there is a cure, there is an answer, there is an antidote, a solution to Jonah's bitterness, a solution to your bitterness. And so while this has been a heavy uh, task this last week, I do approach it with hopeful anticipation that the Spirit of God and the Word of God would do work in the hearts of God's people to root out the bitterness that dwells within and replace it with a joyful love for God and for others. There are among us people who are undeniably bitter. You know it, and the others around you know it. You walk around with that sort of sour look on your face that only a two-year-old sucking on a lemon can replicate. Every conversation you have is oriented around your difficulties, your struggles, your complaints about others or about life. You may not call it bitterness. Perhaps you sugarcoat it and you say that it's just, oh, it's just disappointment. Uh, Perhaps you laughingly say that it's just cynicism. Or perhaps you admit that it's really anger, whatever label you choose. Bitterness is pervasive in Christ's church. And it is, in fact, in gross and total opposition to God's very nature. And it betrays a lack of belief in God's sovereignty and goodness. As we will see in this text, bitterness is really anger toward God. It's usually displayed as anger toward others, but it's actually anger towards God. And what it does is it functionally denies the grace that we've received by God's sovereign hand. Some of you think to yourself, or you look around you and are thinking about the people seated in proximity to you, and you think, well, I don't know anybody that's really bitter. And you say to yourself, well, I'm not really that bitter, or at least I don't appear to be. But bitterness is not always as uh, evident as we might think it is. There are, of course, the folks with the sour faces, but there are the other people who have the, uh, the church smile thing down pat. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good, good, doing really well, better than I deserve. You sing in worship, you attend Bible studies, you post verses on your social media, but deep down in the corners of your heart, you're resentful toward God because of your lot in life. You're bitter about where you are or who you are. You're angry with other people. You're dissatisfied with those relationships that are nearest to you, perhaps your spouse, perhaps your children, Perhaps your parents, you hate your job, you can't understand why your health is failing, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop day by day, and secretly, in those conversations that you only have with yourself, you despise 
texts and sermons about God's sovereignty and his goodness. Because in your heart you say, not in my experience. Not in my experience. The question that we are pressed to ask this morning from Jonah is what does my bitterness really say about my heart and my relationship with and thoughts about God? In other words, put more simply, what does my bitterness say about my faith? What does bitterness say about faith? My friends, fellow believers, we need to see, first of all, that bitterness is really anger with God. As we look at this first point, we see it all over the text. The, the narrator here does not try to give Jonah a pass here or to sugarcoat it and say, Jonah was slightly disappointed. Things didn't work out the way Jonah had hoped they would. He just calls it as it is. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah's prayer to the Lord, such as it were, is nothing like what we would imagine a prayer of a godly man would look like. Rather, it is filled with anger and resentment and bitterness about God's mercy. So angry is Jonah, so angry with God is Jonah that, excuse me, he would rather have God take the very gift of life from him than allow him to go on living in such a ridiculous circumstance. The Lord identifies Jonah's response as anger in verse 4 when he says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah's bitterness is anger towards God. Now, what might surprise you is that all of the language of anger and the attitude that Jonah betrays in his prayer is not the thing that clues us on most explicitly to the fact that Jonah is drifting away from God, that his heart is oriented wrongly in this text. Look with me at verse 5. The narrator wants us to think geographically in terms of Jonah's heart attitude. Now Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Now you may think that the west there was some mountains, in the south there was some water, in the north there were some bad guys up there. So he went to the east because it made the most sense. But you need to understand that in Scripture, moving east is a sign of moving away from God. Moving east is a sign of moving away from God. Adam and Eve, after their rebellion in the garden... God ejected them from the garden and put a, 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 an angel with a flaming sword there to guard the way back. And what direction were they sent away from God? They were sent to the east. Sorry for you all. They were sent to the east. Now, when Cain murders his brother Abel and God says that you will be punished and you will roam on the earth and he puts a mark on him to protect him, Cain departs from the presence of God east. When Noah and his family uh, leave the ark and they build an altar to the Lord, a place of worship and thankfulness for God's protection of them during the flood, uh, the population begins to increase and there's a particular uh, wedge of people, a particular group of people that are part of uh, Noah's uh, descendants that make a tower for their own glory, the Tower of Babel, yes, in Genesis chapter 11. In what direction do they depart from the altar of God to go build this tower of rebellion against God? They go east. And so from one end of Scripture to the other, we see that people who are moving east are moving away from God. The narrator doesn't want us to just hear Jonah's words or hear even God's question. He wants us to know that Jonah is moving away from God to the very depths of his heart. 
He's so angry that he's willing to move away from God's presence. What had happened in chapter 3? The Ninevites repented. That means that these Ninevites are in relationship with God. Where should Jonah have stayed? In Nineveh. He should have stayed in Nineveh, become the world's greatest evangelist. He should have been there sharing the good news about who God is and His covenant faithfulness, teaching them the law, showing them how to sing psalms and how to worship the one and true living God. If he wanted to be near to God, he would have stayed in Nineveh because that's where God was by virtue of his fellowship with the Ninevites. At the very least, he should have returned his way to Israel so he could have gone back to worship among his own people. But rather, he sits down on the east side of the city and sits there and watches, arms crossed, waiting to see if the people will mess it up. Just waiting to see if the people are going to be destroyed by God. He, he finds a little shade, he sits down, he watches, and he's just waiting for the fireworks to begin. Waiting to see what should happen to Nineveh, what would become of the city, it says. Imagine the sort of bitterness it must take to witness a great act of God's redemptive love and grace, 120,000 people repenting in faith, and your only thought is, I hope they get it wrong and die. Notice that Jonah's prayer of complaint to the Lord in verse 2 says nothing about the Ninevites themselves. We remember, of course, that Jonah doesn't love the Ninevites. He wasn't inclined to go there. He ran away from going there. But he's not really angry here because the Ninevites are so bad. He's angry here because God is so good. It's you that I'm upset with. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he says. Bitterness about life circumstances. Oh, we try to pretend that the real issue is that we're angry at people who have sinned against us, or we're upset at the, the way things are going in our lives, or we're upset about things that we see out there, or the way that person behaves, or the pains that we've endured. But really, our bitterness deep in our hearts is anger with God because He's the one who sovereignly rules over all things. Jonah's not mad that the Ninevites are bad. Jonah's mad that God is good, and he knows that the Ninevites' forgiveness came at God's hand, that him going there was a result of God's sovereign call. How appalling is Jonah's attitude towards God's mercy shown towards his enemies. Luke chapter 15 tells us that when one sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice with the Lord. Jonah sees 120,000 people blessed of God, and he complains about it. This is what our hearts are saying when we grow bitter in our circumstances, bitter against other people, bitter about life. Ultimately, what we're saying is that we despise God's plan. We despise God's design. We despise God's sovereignty. We despise God's will. We know that not a sparrow falls to the ground without his knowing it, that the deer in the field don't give birth without his presence, and that the lion's cubs are fed from his hand, that the world is upheld by his word, and that in him we live and move and have our being. 
Therefore, when we complain that life isn't going the way we want it to, or that our health isn't working out the way we think it should, or that things are not fair because this person is receiving blessings that they don't deserve, and I'm over here suffering, and I don't deserve that, what we're really saying is that I don't like the way you're running your universe, God. And if I were in charge, I would do it better. Imagine. Now, of course, none of you would say that out loud, would you? We direct our anger at people instead. Because we can get away with that. And so bitterness often takes the form of gossip and malice, verbally or physically or emotionally lashing out at people who disappoint us. We treat our spouses or our children or our parents or our neighbors as the cause of all of our problems. Because we don't want to actually admit out loud that we're really mad with God. We don't want to say out loud that what we really dislike, where our bitterness really comes from, is God's sovereignty over all things. And so we point our finger at fellow men and women because we think we can at least handle it if it comes to blows. Bitterness is anger with God. It sounds grotesque, and that's why we don't say it. But really what we're saying is that we could do and would do better if we were in charge. Now, my friends, I don't know about you. If you have an iPhone... Some of you don't, I know, that's okay. There's forgiveness for all manner of things. <laughs> you know that there's a little orange oval on your iPhone that says snooze. I heard some of you are already whispering it. You know what that little orange oval is on the alarm setting on your phone, snooze. And you know that if you touch that button, most of you can do it in your sleep. You know that the snooze button is a little closer to the center of the screen. And if you accidentally go too far down, you'll hit stop which means you might sleep for a whole day because there will be no second alarm to get you up. So you know where the snooze button is or you know that if you push one of the side buttons, it will snooze your phone for you, right? You know if you hit two of them, it'll take a picture of your snooze. <laughs> we all know this, which your laughter confirms to me that I'm not the only one that does this. I use my snooze far more often than I care to admit. Now, and so do you. And yet we think that we could run God's universe better if we were in charge? How foolish bitterness makes us. That we're angry with the God who made all things perfectly. And he looked at everything he'd created and he said it was very good. That he did it in total power with wisdom and holiness and justice. He upholds it by power. He sovereignly rules over all things. And when we don't like the way things are going in our own lives, in our relationships, with our health, in the church, we think that people in the church are wicked and they only do evil things to us. And so we begin to talk about the church. Whatever it might be, we're only directing at other people anger that's really oriented towards God. That ought to be just a little frightening that that's what lies in our hearts there's a warning here there's a warning here in this text look at the way the bitterness in jonah grows jonah was exceedingly displeased in verse one and angry and then he begins to lash out at god in verse two and then in verse three he's ready to even die because he's so bitter he hates his very life he hates life under a God who would be gracious to his enemies. He goes to the east of the city and just waits and watches to see if they'll be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah were. 
And then he receives this plant, and he shows the same sort of joy and excitement he had back in chapter 2 for being rescued by the fish. And then as soon as it's gone, he becomes exceedingly angry again. Ready to die. Ready to die, he says in verse 9. The bitterness in Jonah grows and grows and grows. It roots deeper and deeper into his heart. You Lord of the Ring fans will know that the, the ring of power uh, that was forged years, many, many moons ago, it doesn't just sit quietly in the pocket, does it? It doesn't just sit quietly in your pocket whispering to put it on. Rather, every time the owner of the ring puts it on, he descends a little bit more into perpetual wickedness, almost de-evolving, if you will, into a base creature that's only driven by passion and lust. Bitterness does that to our hearts. Bitterness does that to our hearts. The more bitterness we express from our mouths, the more bitterness we harbor in our hearts, the deeper the roots go. The Bible talk about the Bible talks a number of places about the way bitterness is like a root. It's like a root of poison that gets deep into our hearts. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses here is closing up his recounting of the law and God's covenant to his people Israel. And the Lord is speaking the words of the covenant to Moses in chapter 29. And he says in verse 18 and following, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a a root-bearing, poisonous, and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the word of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart and says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Bitterness is not just anger toward God, It is opposed to God's covenant with his people. The root of bitterness grows up in your heart, and you walk around saying, I have the Lord, I'm safe, I go to church. Of course I have things that make me mad, but doesn't everybody? Uh, Friends, I'm not talking about disappointment necessarily, uh, or the grief of a difficult situation in life. Jonah is not grieving a difficulty in life, he's expressing anger towards God's sovereignty and his plan. It's normal and appropriate to grieve over things that are painful and difficult in life. Jesus wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. Jesus, in fact, in his humanity, being truly man and truly God, cried out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, would you take this cup from me if you're able to? But then he responds with the words of someone who understands God's sovereignty and is faithful to God, but not my will, yours be done. The bitter person stops at, take this cup away from me, and I can't believe you gave it to me in the first place. Friends, that sort of bitterness is a threat to the very reality of your walk with Christ. It takes hold of you, and it kills you. Bitterness that Jonah was willing to die for. Is that in your heart? Are you harboring anger and bitterness towards God over things that have happened in your life? the place you find yourself, the person you're married to, the losses you've experienced, the diagnosis you received, 
the financial burdens you've borne for so many years and years? Are you angry with God that he hasn't given you more and in fact angry that other people get the things you think you should have? My friends, Deuteronomy 29 is a warning to us. That's the heart of an unbeliever that thinks those things and dwells on those things and traps them in their heart and keeps them as they're precious. And it kills them. They'll be swept away, it says. Bitterness is anger with God, and my friends, you don't want to be angry with God. Why shouldn't we be angry with God? Because look at what He's done for us. Look at the great things God has done for us. How can we be angry? How can we doubt? How can we trust the goodness and sovereignty of a God who appoints a fish to save Jonah in his moment of greatest failure and rebellion, and who appoints a Savior to save us even while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies with God, he appoints a Savior to come and die for our sins, to give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Every spiritual blessing that you are seated with Christ on high, that if he did not withhold his own son from you, how could he possibly withhold any good thing from you? He gives wisdom from above. He gives mercy and grace from his throne of grace in our time of need. He inclines his ear to hear our pleas for mercy. He loves us with an infinite love and has adopted us stinky, wretched, sinful children into his own family. And he wipes us clean and seats us at his own table to eat the food that he prepared for his son. How can we be angry with such a God? Bitterness, we say it's about other people, but it's about God. It's about God. We justify it by trying to highlight other people's wickedness towards us. But really, it's about God. But there's a solution, there's a cure. There's a cure to bitterness. In fact, we read about it uh, today in our confession of faith in Psalm 112, didn't we? Perhaps you were paying attention to the words of of the confession we made earlier today on page 826 in our Trinity hymnal. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and finds great delight in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. Why will he not be shaken? He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord. If bitterness is really anger directed at God's sovereignty, then the solution of bitterness is submission to God's sovereignty. The solution to the bitter heart is a spirit-wrought faith and submission to the sovereignty and goodness of God. Notice the overwhelming evidence of God's sovereignty in this text. Uh, Jonah is not just experiencing licks at the hand of fate Jonah is not just on, uh, having some ba- a bad run of luck, such as it were. Verse 2, he admits it. Oh, Lord, this is what I said would happen. Because you are this way. He's quoting here 
his orthodoxy is spot on. Exodus chapter 34, you are a God, merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger and forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression, and so on and so forth. He's quoting scripture. Unfortunately, his orthodoxy doesn't lead him to any real semblance of orthopraxy, does it? Rather, he points his finger, he wags his finger at God's sovereignty. He knows that God is sovereign in his plea that God would take his life. And then what do we see here? Three times we read this word in chapter 4 that ought to draw us our, attention, our attention back to chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 17 with me. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Do you remember that, that message of salvation that we saw in chapter 1? That God sovereignly, graciously gave rescue to his rebellious man, Jonah. What do we read here? Now, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. The Lord appointed a worm that attacked the plant. The Lord appointed a scorching east wind so that the sun beat down on the foolish head of Jonah. God's sovereignty is all over this text. God's sovereignty is all over this text. A bitter person denies God's sovereignty, or at the very least, is angry about the exercise of that sovereignty. In order to fight that bitterness and that anger in our heart against God, we need to surrender our lives to his sovereignty, trusting in the covenant faithfulness and goodness of Almighty God. Look at what he's already done. Look at who he really is. It's unfortunate that certain passages of Scripture become cliche during certain seasons in history. We have a, a wealth of prosperity preaching in our world right now, and they abuse texts like Romans 8.28 to their own ends. But the reality is of the words of Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. If those words are not etched into the deepest recesses of your heart, you will not have the tools needed to trust God's sovereignty in the deepest, darkest places in life. Jonah ran from God, and he appointed a fish to save him. Jonah preached repentance, and 120,000 people put their faith in God. Jonah was angry at God, and God gave him shade. God is working all things together for the good of Jonah, and he still doesn't get it. Bitterness is anger towards God, and what it ends up doing, the reason that it is even able to grow, is because it functionally denies God's grace in our lives. Desmond Alexander may be a name you're familiar with. He's an Old Testament scholar uh, who writes biblical theology, in particular his area of expertise is in the Pentateuch. And uh, in a book that he wrote about the first five books of the Bible, Desmond Alexander makes a brilliant statement about what grumbling really is. And he says, grumbling, in effect, grumbling, as you know, is really just the verbalization, the vocalization of bitterness, right? Out of the heart, uh, the mouth speaks, yes? So people who grumble and complain are really just bitter in their hearts, and they're telling everybody about it. He says, grumbling, referring to the Israelites in the book of Numbers as they're grumbling against God's provision for them in the wilderness, he says it does three things, and I want you to hear these in light of this idea of bitterness. Grumbling, first of all, misremembers the past. You remember the Israelites? Oh, Egypt was so good. Remember how we used to sit around pots full of meat and we had bread and onions? And wasn't life great back in Egypt? You guys remember Egypt, how great that was? Um, and, of course, you think to yourself, 
you were enslaved and they were literally throwing your children into the river. Uh, you were making bricks without straw. It was the worst of the worst for you. But grumbling misremembers that. Jonah's grumbling here misremembers the fact that in his wickedness, God showed mercy. Misremembers the past. It denies God's grace in the present. Remember the Israelites going, oh, this manna is the worst. I hate manna. God is raining down food from heaven for you to eat in the wilderness. And they're grumbling against it, denying the goodness and loving kindness of God in the present moment. Now, just as a point of note, when, when Moses describes the manna in the book of Numbers, he uses words that are only found in one other place in Scripture, and that's in Genesis 1 and 2 to describe the Garden of Eden. In other words, this food is an Edenic representation of God's covenant faithfulness and love to his people, and they deny it like it's the worst thing that they've ever eaten. And then grumbling, third of all, fails to lay hold of God's future promises. What happens to all these complainers? They perish in the wilderness, and they don't enter the promised land, and they fail to lay hold of God's goodness and his promises in the future. And that's what bitterness does. It denies God's grace in our lives. You remember that we expected Jonah to be drowning in chapter 2, verse 1. And the, and the sailors threw him into the raging storm, and he hit the water and sank down, and that was the end of old Jonah. We would expect here in chapter 4 to find Jonah uh, complaining, he's angry, he's exceedingly angry, and then the worm came up and attacked the plant, and the sun rose, and God appointed a scorching east wind, and Jonah dehydrated and was cooked to death in the desert. That's what we would expect to see. And yet he's still alive because of God's grace and mercy. And bitterness and anger towards God denies God's grace in our own lives now. Have you considered how much grace God has shown you? We often think of God's grace only in terms of our salvation from sin. And of course, that is the greatest evidence of God's grace in our lives. But are you aware of the fact that your ability to hear my voice proclaim the word of God this morning is God's grace in your life? The fact that moment to moment your heart continues to beat is God's grace in your life. And that some 12 to 16 times a minute your lungs Taking in air and giving you life is God's grace in your life. And that not only everything that you do have, but everything that you don't have is evidence of God's grace in your life. My friends, one of the reasons that we find ourselves growing in bitterness and failing to appreciate and lay hold of God's grace in our lives is because we simply don't think in those terms, do we? As Jim loves to say, there is a, a dearth of gratitude in our world today. Just a gross lack of it. Our rugged individualism has ruined us in worship. We've convinced ourselves that we've earned something and that we are entitled to something and that when God withholds something, He's just being plain old mean, isn't he? 
We're like petulant children. Jonah is, in effect, throwing a temper tantrum here. And that's what's going on in the hearts of people who hold on to bitterness and harbor anger in their heart toward God or towards others. My friends, I think one of the solutions to this sort of behavior is to, as the sign, as you walk out the doors this morning when we finish, go through the front doors of the church and look behind the bush that's on the left side as you're exiting. And there's a little metal plaque there. And it says, 1 Samuel 7, 12. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. That comes from a passage where the people of Israel raise an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance to God for the good and awesome things he had done for them in the land of Israel. You remember in Joshua chapter 4, the people cross the river and the Lord tells Joshua, send 12 men back and grab a stone from the middle of the river and erect a memorial right here on the edge of the bank of the water. So that way when your children say, why are those stones there? You can point to them and say, this is what God did for us. He wanted his people to be perpetually reminded of the gratitude they ought to have towards God in order to fight the bitterness, the fear, the anger, and the unfaithfulness that was sure to come in their fallen state. And that's what we need. We need regular reminders. You know, it's one of the greatest joys of family worship is to sit around the table with your family and ask questions about God's goodness in your life just today. Have you ever done that before and found out how difficult it is just to point your finger at something specific that God did for you today? Because we don't think in those terms. Jonah had received grace upon grace, and in bitterness he had grown angry with God, and he had failed to appreciate God's kindness towards him. And we can be the same way. We're really angry with God in our bitterness. It's directed at others, but it's really a lack of trust and appreciation for God's sovereignty. And then we fail to remember in grateful worship just how kind God has been to us. Bitterness destroys worship. It stifles sanctification. It blinds reason, and it impedes our fellowship with others. And the solution is to celebrate God's grace in our lives and the lives of others. We do this each Lord's Day in worship, don't we? As we sing to the God who saved us, as we confess our sins and receive forgiveness from him afresh, as we confess our faith, as we sit under the preaching of his word and are reminded of who he is and what he's done. But we need more of it than just Lord's Day to Lord's Day. We need daily reminders of God's goodness to us. This closing chapter, and indeed the entire book of Jonah, has been a contrast between Jonah's heart and God's. God is compassionate towards creatures great and small, those made in his image, and even the beasts of the field, towards the pagan mariners and the Ninevites and the cattle. Jonah is only compassionate when it concerns himself and the plant that provided him shade. Jonah's compassion is wrongly oriented. Our compassions are often wrongly oriented. We're most concerned with our own comfort, our own happiness, our own satisfaction, rather than the joy of other people or the goodness and sovereignty of God. As we said in the beginning, there's no resolution to this text because it doesn't really matter what Jonah does. It only matters what God does. God shows kindness. God shows grace. God shows mercy and forgiveness and love to people who don't deserve it. And that's what we should take away from the book of Jonah as we bring this series to a close. 
But I suppose there's one other thing that matters, and that's what you're going to do. What are you going to do with God's grace and mercy? Are you going to rejoice in God's grace, trust in his sovereignty, believe in his mercy, revel in his rule and authority, appreciate deeply his love and compassion and the forgiveness that he's shown you in Christ? Will you humbly accept his divine sovereignty over your life and the lives of others? Or will you retain bitterness in your heart, growing increasingly angry with God, allowing it to take root deep within, and eventually even denying the very grace of God in Christ Jesus? If we take nothing away from Jonah, let it be this. In the final stroke of divine irony, Jonah, in his angry prayer, utters the key phrase for the entire book. Jonah chapter 2, or chapter 4, verse 2. You are a gracious God and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you root out any vestiges of bitterness and anger that reside in our hearts? Lord, would you give us a greater appreciation for and love of and confidence in your goodness and your sovereignty and your covenant faithfulness? How could we ever doubt you? you who did not withhold your only son. How could we ever be angry with you? You who experienced the full wrath of God on the cross for our sins. How could we ever deny your grace? Those who are not only enemies, but running headlong towards hell. The wrath of God over us, dangling like a spider over a fire. And you, in your kindness and mercy, plucked us out, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Thank you, Lord. Remind us daily, we pray, of the love of God in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.